This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, April 29th, 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. The threat of further government control of health care looms larger than ever. Key to President Obama's plans for nationalized health care is the employer mandate. Cato Institute adjunct scholar Aaron Yellowitz details how employer mandates function and how they don't. Employer mandates are when typically a government, the state government, most often says to employers, you must either provide health insurance to your employees or you pay a tax to the state government so that the state government can provide the health insurance directly. It, uh, the genesis for the most recent employer mandates was around 2003 when then-Governor Gray Davis signed legislation enacting a fairly burdensome employer mandate in California uh, right before he was recalled. So he signed it two days before the election. And the voters of California in November 2004, by a very narrow margin, uh, 51% to 49% overturned that law. But that law then became kind of a model for other states like New York and Washington State. And then places like Massachusetts uh, have a small employer mandate in their legislation. And places like Maryland also came up with employer mandates as well that have been overturned at uh, the cor- at the court level. Libertarians are generally not going to be very sympathetic to the idea of a government telling an employer uh, what kind of relationship it, it must have with with employees. But how are employer mandates typically sold to the public and to law- state lawmakers? The way that employer mandates are typically sold is that Sure, we're interfering with the labor market, but it's a relatively small, innocuous piece of legislation that, quote unquote, hits the irresponsible employers and has very little impact on, quote unquote, good employers, whatever those terms mean. Uh, In my work, I've tried to debunk the sort of selling points or talking points that, uh, that proponents typically make of those. For example, one of the things that is talked about is that very few firms are affected by this kind of legislation, this pay-or-play legislation. For example, uh, it's often said that only 5% of employers are affected by, say, California's mandate, which affected firms with 50 or more employees. Well, that's true to one degree in the sense that there are a whole bunch of one-person firms, two-person firms in California. There are very few firms the size of Walmart, Microsoft, etc. And so when all is said and done, only 5% of employers are affected by this kind of law, but around two-thirds of all employees are affected by the law. So in a sense, it's a pretty dishonest way of representing the impact to deliberately make it look much smaller than it actually is. Another sort of talking point related to that is proponents would often say that large firms already offer health insurance coverage. Well, It's true that large firms, perhaps 99% of firms, already offer health insurance coverage to some employees, but what that doesn't say is that all employees are taking up coverage or that that firms are offering coverage to all employees. So, for example, part-time workers are far less likely to get coverage than full-time workers. Many people are covered through their spouses, maybe on Medicaid, may choose to buy health insurance in the private market, perhaps, for various reasons like that. Perhaps only two-thirds of employees are actually covered by their own employer plan. 
So when we say 99% of firms already offer health insurance coverage, that leaves the impression that very few firms will actually have new incremental costs from this, and that is far from the case. So if two-thirds of employees are taking up your own coverage, and these sorts of laws force you to provide coverage to the other one-third of employees, then clearly it's going to have quite a bit of expense. Some employer mandates have specific requirements, as you, as you said, 50 employees or more, 200 employees or more. How does that actually impact hiring decisions that firms make? There are several ways. Um, there's sort of the classic labor economics notion, which is when we raise the cost of doing business, um, firms will hire fewer of the affected factors. So, for example, you know, one line of argument would go that we're raising the cost of hiring employees if we now have to tack on health insurance in addition to other so forms of compensation. We would then basically take some labor demand elasticity, uh, perhaps look at uh, literatures like the minimum wage literature where we see what happens when we artificially raise compensation and basically look for employment effects. One of the things that actually happens in the context of employer mandates um, that would lead to less of an employment effect but is still quite undesirable is there's quite a bit of evidence that firms if we force them to provide health insurance, might simply shift that back onto the workers in the form of lower wages. So if you're nowhere close to the minimum wage, and most people are not close to the minimum wage, uh, but you have no health insurance or perhaps health insurance that's deemed inadequate by the state authority, then your firm has to pay more for health insurance. They might basically shift that back onto you in the form of not giving you a pay raise for the next couple of years or perhaps even lowering wages. To the extent that they do that, that would lessen the employment effect. But in, in a sense, in a sense, what it does is change the compensation package. So the state knows better than you how you should be compensated. So if you're compensated fifty thousand dollars, the state would have some sense on. We believe that you should be compensated, say, eight thousand dollars worth of health insurance and forty-two thousand worth of wages. So that's one way to think about these employer mandates. Um, there are some employment effects. In my work, I've calculated that. Uh, it would largely have employment effects for low-wage workers, where in a sense we can't shift back uh, the health insurance onto the employees in the form of lower wages. Um, then we have a case analogous to the minimum wage literature. The other sort of flavor of argument that a lot of people would think of, which is a little bit different than that, is the kind of games that firms might play uh, when, for example, there's a 200-employee cutoff. For example, is that a headcount? Is it full-time equivalent employees, what is it exactly? No matter how you define it, there are potentially games that firms can play. Uh, what is a covered employee, for example? You know, as someone who works five hours a week counted as an employee. We could imagine, for example, consolidating part-time jobs into full-time jobs in order to get below these thresholds where the law kicks in. And so that's yet another kind of employment effect. That's less studied in the literature. One could imagine that it actually is important, though, especially for firms that are growing and thinking of growing above these thresholds. Once you have a government deciding that coverage must be extended, the government must determine what will qualify as adequate coverage. There have been problems with that in Massachusetts in the individual market when the government says you must have uh, certain types of coverage. They've defined certain uh, coverage based on religious affiliation as uh, inadequate. How, how, does this, uh, how does this end up? One of the sort of unintended consequences that would happen 
if the government says you must provide health insurance coverage is, we would imagine that firms and employees will get together and if they choose not to provide health insurance coverage, what they like to do is have the most bare bones plan that they could after this sort of government regulation goes into effect. Um, typical, typically, social planners would say something like, not only must you provide health insurance coverage, but I decide that it must be, quote unquote, adequate. And so whatever that means. What that means is that when people compute the costs of a health insurance mandate, a lot of, a lot of people deliberately, um, to minimize the cost, only count the cost to the uninsured population. So in California, for example, I believe around 2 million uninsured workers and their families would have gotten coverage through California's law. Well, clearly that is a cost. Turns out it's not the biggest cost, however. California's law, which in a sense provided not only you must provide health insurance coverage, but a minimum floor of coverage as well, basically meant that lots of employees were getting co coverage through their employers, but it wasn't as generous as the state of California would, would have liked it to be. And so, in a sense, we have millions of employees who already have health insurance coverage who will, in a sense, artificially have their benefits raised or their co-payments lowered and so forth. And then how that actually plays out in the labor market is to be determined. But those are legitimately new costs to employers as well. And so proponents would deliberately not count those sorts of costs because they somehow, uh, it, because it would hurt their case. Aaron Yelowitz is a professor of economics at the University of Kentucky and is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. You can read more of Cato's work on restoring markets to health care at cato.org.